What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 5 of Filibustered. I'm Morgan Edwards. And I'm Robert Ishamoy. And so before we start talking about the craziness that's been going on in politics for the over the last week or so, I have to give a shout out to a random person who messaged me on one of our the site that we host our podcast on and sent me a message called Phil, titled Filibustered Theme Song. And let me play it for you real quick. Filibustered, can you pass the mustard? I'm having lunch with some politicians today. I'm gonna see what goes on behind the curtain. What'll you know? What'll I learn? I'm filibustered. Thank you so much for that. Yo. <laughs> so I I opened up this random message and listened to that and just lost it. I was I was crying. Um so shout out to you for sending us that message. Maybe we'll have to adopt that as our new theme music. And that goes for He's everybody official. else. Send us Yeah, send us stuff. Send us uh send us questions. We'll answer some of them on the air. Uh, reach out to us on social media or reach out to filibustered podcast on social media or email us at filibusteredpodcast at gmail.com. You never know. Maybe you'll be featured on the podcast like that <laughs> amazing theme song. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> um, so today uh, we're going to be talking about Trump administration separating parents and children who come over the border as well as the Trump administration ending uh, temporary protection status for Hondurans. Uh, living in the United States. Also, the unrest that has ensued uh, in the Middle East as a result of the embassy being moved to Jerusalem. Uh, and then also, we're going to talk about the trade war that we have started with China. And then we'll have a crazy story of the week. And then finally, uh, we're super excited. We're going to be joined by our friend Mackenzie Hawkins from California, who went to the Senate Youth Program with us. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, what's going on with politics in california so that that'll be interesting definitely don't want to miss that so we hope you enjoy so our first topic today uh the trump administration where does the racism end the trump administration is now separating parents and children who cross the border rob your thoughts I mean, I think it has come to a point where I think this administration is passing policies and implementing policies, which are just mean-spirited. Like, they're just mean-spirited in nature. Like, there is no reason for this policy to separate parents and children. Like, look, if you're going to have your policies and your beliefs about, you know, the ways in which people should come to this country through what means, you know, and all that stuff, that's fine. We can have that debate. You can implement policies on that basis of however you believe people should be able to come to this country. But to to intentionally separate parents and children who come over the border, that's just immoral. That's just what it is. I mean, let's call it what it is. It's just immoral, it's mean-spirited, and it's sickening. And this is something that we should not stand for. Um, so I'm not sure what Jeff Sessions uh, was thinking about this while implementing this policy, but it's, it's extremely just... Um, it's just, it's terrible and it's horrible. And I, I hope that we are, we find some way to be able to fight against this policy because it's just, it's immoral. That's what it is at the end of the day. 
Right. And there was an article that came out um, in The New Yorker called Taking Children from Their Parents is a Form of State Terror. And the author of this article sort of talked about how this tactic of separating parents and children has been used uh, by authoritarian regimes throughout history. Stalin did it in Russia. The Nazis used it. So we're, we're, we're not putting ourselves in good company to be practicing the same strategy that these sort of totalitarian regimes use throughout history. We're, we're not on the right side of history here. This is blatant racism. And then to add on to that, the Trump administration recently ended temporary protection status for Hondurans that are living in the country. The people that are under this protected status came to the United States after Hurricane Mitch devastated Honduras in 1998 and left the country back lacking basic infrastructure and sanitation, safe water. Uh, so people are fleeing for their lives and coming to the United States, and now nearly 90,000 Hondurans will be facing deportation in 18 months due to the Trump administration. So, Rob, what are your thoughts on that? You know, a lot of times when uh, the Trump administration or any policy, any administration passes its policies, um, where, you know, uh, those who have been protected under TPS, which is temporarily protection status, um, a lot of times when they pass this new policy to say, well, you've been living here for a while, we gave refuge to you for however many, 20 years, however it may be, now you need to go back to your country. You know, it's the same thing that happened with uh, Haitians and out under this administration. But what they don't realize is that the country in which they fled because there was no, you know, infrastructure was damaged, you know, gang violence and poverty was extremely at a, at a, at a high and alarming rate. But these things are still going on in those countries. So it's still not a safe place to go back to. It's still not a place in which, you know, um, these people who have been who were brought over through this uh, through TPS um, can thrive and can do well within that country. And again, these people have also had kids who who all they know is the U.S. And so now when you tell these people to go back to Honduras, that means that there's going to be kids who are going to be left without parents, families who are going to be separated and broken and breaking and broken up. And so, again, these policies being passed by this administration when it comes to immigration are just blatantly immoral and even racist. That's that's what I would call them because it's just the way in which we are treating individuals who come to this country to seek refuge um, is uh, for for this administration that tends to call itself religious and Christ-like. These policies are not in any way, shape, or form, you know, uh, Christ-like. They're just Im they're immoral and they're mean-spirited. And this is sad. We should not be treating our immigrant communities in this fashion. So not only is the Trump administration doing this in the Western Hemisphere, making matters worse, uh, in the Middle East, now the Trump administration just mo officially moved the embassy to Jerusalem and recognized that as the capital, which has now escalated tensions between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. The Israeli uh, army f opened fire on Palestinian protesters killing dozens of them. And, you know, when I saw the story come out, it reminded me of when uh, you and I were in the Pentagon during Washington week at the Senate Youth Program. And we were listening to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Patrick Shanahan, and someone, one of our fellow delegates, I can't remember who, asked him, you know, what are the, what are the ramifications of moving the embassy to Jerusalem and recognizing that as the capital? And he said, quote, I don't know that answer. I don't think we know. We know it affects things. I don't know how that calculus plays out. Well, I'll tell you what, this is how that calculus played out. Dozens of people who are protesting for their rights who are now murdered in cold blood 
by the Israeli military. Many people saw this. This was coming. This was a very controversial move. Foreign policy experts said this is going to escalate tensions. This is not a good idea. Well, look what Trump did. Of course, goes against the advice, makes tensions worse. Where's Jared Kushner when you need him, right? Jared Kushner, remember when he was tasked with Middle East peace? He, Jared Kushner was supposed to save the Middle East. Well, look how that's going. This is it's, uh, it's very sad and it's very um, it's it, it's it's disgusting in ways. You know, over the period of what seven weeks since uh, March, uh, Israeli the Israeli Defense Force has killed uh, up to sixty Palestinians uh, along the Gaza the, the Gaza uh, border. Uh, and so, you know, these Palestinians are out here protesting because they have a right to claim to Jerusalem as much as the Israelis do. Uh, they have a right to that land of Jerusalem. And so when we as a country decide that we're no longer going to be impartial like all the previous administrations have been because they saw that it was the best in the interest of the of the two-state solution deal, hopefully for that to come to fruition, that it was in the best interest you know, of, of possibly having that deal, if the U.S. was impartial about, you know, Jerusalem, about moving about moving uh, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, because then that would mean that the U.S. has officially acknowledged Jerusalem as Israel's capital. But the Palestinians are claiming ownership to it, too, and they should have that right. And so when we have made this decision, it's going to create tensions between the two groups. And so when these Palestinians are here at the... Uh, Gaza border protesting for that right to be able to go to Jerusalem, live in Jerusalem, you know, work freely in Jerusalem, be able to pray freely in Jerusalem because they have ownership to it. The Israeli Defense Force goes out and slaughters them. 60 Palestinians. Some of these were women, children, journalists, and first responders and bystanders. I mean, and the U.S. is standing by Israel, you know, um, the Trump administration blocked the adoption of UN Security Council resolution calling for the investigation of Israel over the deadly violence in Gaza. So we, not only do we have an administration which is which has created this this problem, now it's complicit and standing by Israel and saying, "Yeah, you know what? We don't want you guys to be investigated for the mass murders that you just committed." And, and the Israeli Defense Force kept saying that, you know, all oh, these protesters, you know. Uh, I believe they said that three uh, Palestinians had uh, were, were trying to plant explosives at the border um, and that, you know, uh, some of the protesters were seen with uh, they call them uh, Molotov cocktails and stones um, and hurling over fl uh, flaming de devices attached to uh, kites and whatnot. And these things are like, but my question is, how many Israelis were hurt or killed? There's only one Israeli soldier who has been reported to have been injured. And that, in some way, a shape or form, uh, is a way to, uh, in a sense, say that it's okay to kill 60 Palestinians. I mean, there's no way that we as a country should stand and sit idly by while people are being innocently killed. Killed for no good reason. Um, and, and so I, I just... Uh, we have to keep a an eye on this and just keep pushing our government to do better and to do better. And they should have an investigation as to why Israel took the actions that it took. And even the UN uh, Human Rights uh, Commissioner has condemned these actions. He has condemned Israel for killing these Palestinians. And so this is just sad all around. Um, and look, I want peace in the Middle East, but Trump is definitely not the person who's going to give it to us. Oh,
So now our next topic, if you remember on the campaign trail, China was a common refrain for Donald Trump. China. They talked about how China was raping us, uh, in his own words, how they were taking all of our jobs, how he was going to get these jobs back and help American workers. Well, article came out recently, several articles, and talked about how China has now stopped buying soybeans from the U.S. altogether because of the trade war that the Trump administration has started by slapping tariffs on Chinese products. So China is the second largest market for U.S. agricultural exports, and soybeans have historically been one of the top products sold to China, and now they are not in the market anymore. So this is going to have drastic effects on American workers and middle-class Americans in middle America. Um, and the thing that I find interesting about this is it's the same people that live in, in the Midwest and kind of in your neck of the woods, Rob, and uh, in middle America that are dependent <laughs> on this. This is going to hurt, and they're still, you know, still Trump supporters. You know, Trump has a, has a stronghold in a lot of these Midwest areas of the country who he's directly hurting. And the same applies in my neck of the words, woods in Appalachia. Uh, coal was king, and, and Trump kept preaching coal was coming back. And that's that's just not the case. You know, all these people voted for Trump. He won overwhelmingly in, in Appalachia and West Virginia. And then he subsequently tried to cut the funding for the Appalachian Regional Commission that is a lifeline for uh, hurting communities in Appalachia. So it's, it's just mind-boggling to me that it's these communities that are directly voting against their interests and supporting a man who is directly harming them. And he still retains their support. So I think this this is something that Democrats really need to focus on in the in the midterms. Um, it you know we have to we have to drive home our own vision of our own policies, our own platform. I think we need to balance that with attacking Trump on ways that he's hurting uh, your average American. For instance, with China and how you know his, he started this trade war. And the last thing I have to say in that is another set of you story when we were when we met with Steve Mnuchin who's the secretary of the treasury we met with him on the day that Trump signed in the aluminum tariff into law and Steve Mnuchin stood there in front of us and said that he believed that Trump is a free trader on the same day that he signed a tariff into law and basically started the trade war so i mean we've talked about it many times in the show but it's just this blatant lying that is just ridiculous i would say that Trump is the perfect con man i mean um you know, he, he was able to buy and he, he was able to basically lie to individuals who really had, for some weird reason, believe that this rich guy from New York, Donald Trump, reality star, is someone going to be their savior and help them from these from this economic uh, turmoil that they were in. You know, obviously, the, the, those struggles that they talk about, this, the economic turmoil that people in middle America are in, that is true. That's a reality. That is happening. But they ended up trusting a guy who could literally care less about people in middle America. Literally put their trust in him to be able to help them out. Um, and, and that's that's a sad reality. But again, like you said, these are people who voted against their own interests. The people who believed in Donald Trump to help them are the ones who are getting uh, who are getting the back end of Donald Trump's policies. They're getting hurt negatively. For getting uh, affected in a negative way by his own, by the same policies that he's enacting. Uh, and so that's just a reminder to us when you vote for a candidate, make sure you know of the policies that they're going to enact and in what way those policies are going to affect your pocket 
affect your community and affect uh you know Americans as a whole and especially the common citizen in America. Now we're going to move on to our crazy story of the week segment. The last couple of weeks, we've had two uh, crazy stories of the week each time. And once again, this week, we have two crazy stories of the week. There's so much happening that we couldn't even narrow it down. So our first one, this is just extremely sad. As we know, John McCain is battling cancer right now. And a White House aide in a private meeting, Kelly Sadler, they were talking about how John McCain is not supportive of Gina Haspel, who's the CIA uh, CIA director nominee. And when they were talking about this, she remarked, well, it, quote, it doesn't matter. He's dying anyway. <sighs> Which, I mean, it's just no matter where you stand on policy, you have to take a step back and realize that these people, it's, it's, it's not about political ideology. These people that are working for Trump, it's a disgrace that they're the representation of us to the rest of the world. People joking about a U.S. senator dying of cancer and still has her job. That, in a nutshell, is the Trump administration. We can talk about, you know, the stuff we talked about earlier in the, on the show about splitting up families and kicking people out of the country, and that, in and of itself, is terrible. But then we have people joking about senators dying. Where does it end? I mean, you know, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden was talking about, you know, for a long time we had thought about, we, we were basically anticipating on when is this administration going to hit rock bottom. And that today is when they have done so. Uh, and I would like to say, well, they, this mission hasn't only hit rock bottom. They've literally hit hell bottom. They, they've literally went down to hell bottom because the things that are coming out of the mouth of this administration, of what, of people working in this administration are things that nobody would have expected for anybody working in the White House to be saying. And the crazy thing, uh, and the crazy thing about this is that this White House aide still has not apologized publicly about the comments that she made about a sitting senator, John McCain, a, a, a hero of this country and whatnot. And, um, also it's crazy to me that, uh, an individual working in the White House could say something like this and not get any sort of repercussion for saying what she has said. And any normal job, if you were to say something about, like this, about someone else, I mean, I, I'm not really sure if you, as as uh, Megan McCain, uh, John McCain's daughter said, I'm not sure of what what place of work you could say something like this and still come to work the next day. Um, and so that's what's troubling to me. It seems like the White House is not even taking this seriously. All White House aides have been come out uh, talking about, you know, as to how terrible it is that somebody leaked this information. Uh, you know, and, and it seems like as if they're more mad about the leak of of, of mm. this uh comment than they are about the content of the words that were said in this comment. And so that's where we're at, where this administration literally has no moral bearing, no moral uh standing. We can't even look to the White House to see moral uh uh guidelines anymore. We just can't, uh, and that's sad. Yeah. Besides, like you said, besides the Trump administration lacking any moral compass. In addition, on sort of a lighter note, crazy story of the week, Donald Trump and Sean Hannity, you know, they sort of have this bromance going on. Um, <laughs> and uh, Sean Hannity is reportedly one of a few dozen people who have access to Trump's official phone line, and the two speak on the phone nearly every night after Sean Hannity's show. A couple staffers have said that it's almost like Sean Hannity is one of Trump's staffers. That's how close they are. 
And uh, my favorite part of this is that one White House official referred to their relationship as, quote, a fucked up feedback loop. Uh, <laughs> so we have Fox News propaganda machine infiltrating the White House now. I don't know. What is it with Sean Hannity and, and Donald Trump? It, maybe Sean Hannity, like, counts sheep for Donald Trump before he goes to bed. Maybe that's how he like, Susan to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. Why, what other reasons do they have to talk that often, <laughs> right? <laughs> My question is, what the fuck? What is this, Russia or something? <laughs> where, where literally the president of the United States is is talking with uh the news with with journalists and news and telling them what to to say and whatnot. And, and Donald Trump. Did you always just tweets, did you just refer to Sean Hannity as a journalist, Rob? You, uh, I forgot. He's I'm, a I'm cons- com- political com- commentator. That's what a commentator. <laughs> not real. Fox News. I'm concerned about know, you. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but nevertheless, <laughs> having said that, but you know, I mean, the people that watch Sean Hannity, I'm not sure they can distinguish the difference between him being a commentator and real news. I mean, the, a commentator just spews opinions. Like we're doing, we just spew our own opinions. I mean, we use facts for the opinions in which we spew. But I'm not sure if those watching uh, the Hannity show can really are really dispute distinguishing between the two. Real news and just commentary. But the crazy thing about this is, I'm just wondering, how does Melania Trump feel, feel about it? I mean, that's that's the whole thing <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering. You know, is she going to Donald Trump like, Donald, you know, you need to choose between me or Hannity. Which one do you want? <laughs> me or Hannity. You know, you have to choose, Donald. Hello talk. Hello talk between Sean and Hannity. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if Sean Hannity is reading him like, you know, a little bedtime story. Okay, Mr. President. Well, Mr. President, you know, uh, which one do you want to read today? You know, uh, I can't think of any bedtime <laughs> stories. <laughs> He's just trying to expand Trump's vocabulary past like a hundred words. <laughs> Mary had a little. Mary. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. But this is, but this is weird, though. I mean, we can't act like as if you know this is not weird. Sean Hannity is one of uh, uh one of a dozen uh. People who actually have a direct line to the president. I mean, just think about that. Think about that. That is just so weird. Like the one White House official said, it's a fucked up feedback loop. That's what it is. Yeah. It actually gives me hope. Like you could be as you could be as crazy as Sean Hannity and spew propaganda, and then you can be friends with the president. Who knows where we can all go? It's an inspiring message, y'all. We could have a direct line with Kanye West. Hey, when he's the president. Hey. Ooh. No, I, I don't like that dragon. Guys, that was a, guys, that was a joke. That's no, we we're, we're not for it. <laughs> <laughs> we know what you say. So we are joined by our guest Mackenzie Hawkins from California, um, affectionately known as Mac or Mac Hawk. She wears many hats. Um, but we went to the Senate Youth Program with her this past March. She'll be attending Yale this coming fall and is an all-around incredible person. So, Mackenzie, how's it going on the left coast? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to uh, have you on the podcast. So, you gave a TED Talk at your school and organized a TEDx event. Um, so, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I gave my talk at our third event. So I started planning them my freshman year and my first event was the beginning of my sophomore year. 
and I gave my talk on the importance of speaking with people with whom we disagree, especially in our current political climate, it's really easy to kind of narrow ourselves into echo chambers and only consume news that we agree with and only talk to people whose political beliefs align with ours. And our events are geared towards freshmen that are um, just starting out at our school. So I thought that was an important message to pass on, especially after the very recent election um, that was particularly divisive. I wanted to pass that message along to people who were just starting you know, this high school experience where they would be interacting with people with different beliefs. My school, although in California and in the Bay Area, is politically diverse kind of within that landscape. And there are lots of students who get into very heated arguments. And I feel like it's important for kids to go into those conversations with the right mindset and try to understand other people's perspectives rather than always trying to convince and prove that they are correct. So that's what I gave my talk on. Um, and then just TEDx in general was a really great experience for me. My personal favorite speaker was Zoe Dunning, who was the last openly LGBTQ plus identifying person in the military before the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And she actually helped bring about that repeal. So it was just really incredible being able to work with her and hear her story and have her speak at my school. So yeah, that's TEDx. So we keep hearing about, you know, the blue wave coming this November in the midterms. And if the Democrats are going to take back the House, they need to flip a number of seats. Um, and several of the best opportunities for Democrats to gain those seats is in California, um, including the seat that's currently held by Dana Rohrabacher and uh, also the seat that Daryl Issa is vacating. So talk to us about this dynamic and, you know, the chance for Democrats to gain seats in California. Yeah, so it's really interesting in California right now. We have 10 kind of contested congressional races that the Democrats could potentially flip. Um, the one that you mentioned is in Orange County. Um, I actually have a friend who's working on a Democratic campaign down there. Um, vote Omar Siddiqui on June 5th if you're down there. Um, <laughs> gotta plug him. But we have <laughs> some more hotly contested districts, especially in the two seats that we have Republicans vacating and not running for re-election. So one of those is Daryl Issa, who you mentioned, and the other one is Ed Royce. Um, and a lot of these districts are in the Orange County area, which tends to go more red in California, and also kind of more inland in like the Bakersfield area, some parts of San Bernardino County, um, and also in San Diego. So we have 10 seats that are open. Democrats definitely need to flip a few of them. And the few that we mentioned are one of, are a few of the ones that the Democrats think they have a better chance at. But overall, California is definitely, I mean, we've always trended, well, not always, but in recent years, years we've trended pretty progressive and we're continuing to do so. So a lot of people are hopeful. And in terms of my district, I have um, a very Democratic representative, Eric Swalwell, who I think is awesome and should definitely run for higher office. So I don't have a particularly exciting house race coming up, but there's a lot to watch in California this year. Yeah. So with some of those races, um, there was an interesting political article that just came out and it talked about how Democrats could potentially face challenges in primaries because of this jungle primary system that is unique to California. So tell us a little bit about that and how that can affect Democratic chances. Yeah, so California has a top two primary system, meaning that the two candidates from either party who get the most votes in the primary will advance to the general election, which means that say we have a district with a Republican incumbent and one Republican challenger and say 10 Democrats vying for that congressional seat the 10 Democrats could potentially split the Democratic vote, and then the two Republicans would be the highest vote getters from that district. And so in the general, we would end up with just Republicans um, that the voters can choose from. So it's a system that I'm not 
personally a huge fan of because I like to have, you know, contest elections in terms of party representation. That's a system that we have. So in a lot of these districts that Democrats are trying to contest and potentially flip in 2018, we also have to look at the flip side of that and see that if we have so many Democratic candidates pushing for those seats that we could potentially kind of fracture um, the Democratic vote and fracture the Democratic base and end up with either the same Republican incumbent or another Republican in that seat. And uh, Mackenzie, so there's another contested uh, race, which is the Senate race between uh, Diane Feinstein and uh, the California Democratic State Senate uh, President Kevin DeLeon. Uh, I'm not sure if I said that last name correctly, uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> but DeLeon <laughs> tends to lean a little bit more progressive than does um, Feinstein. And actually, Feinstein just got a, a um, uh, an endorsement from President Obama. And with these two, uh, there's sort of this, I would say, another Democratic infight between the two. Where it's basically there's one wing of the party that's like we need a more progressive individual like the Leon, the Leon, um, in the Senate, and the others are like, well, we need a more moderate individual like uh, uh, Senator Feinstein to stay in that seat. And so, what are you seeing the conversation between that Senate race, and um, what do you think is going to end up happening, and what do you hope comes out of you know this Senate race that's and somewhat that's I could call highly contested. Yeah, I would say it's definitely a highly contested race. But to be fair, Feinstein has been leading in the polls since Dillion announced, and she continues to do so, usually by a margin of well over 20 points. Um, and her current endorsements include our other senator, Kamala Harris, our former senator, Barbara Boxer, our current lieutenant governor, and hopefully next governor, Gavin Newsom, um, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, and Reps Ted Lieu, and I believe Adam Schiff, um, who are pretty prominent within the Democratic Party. So in my view, Feinstein is sitting pretty pretty right now. Oh, wow. I just said pretty pretty. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So in my view, Feinstein is sitting pretty right now. What people don't like about her, you know, she is a five-term senator. And when Trump was originally elected president, She made a few statements that kind of caused the progressive wing of the California Democratic Party to be a little wary of her kind of intentions within this administration and current political climate, you know, saying that we need to give Donald Trump a chance, that we should wait it out and see what happens. And a lot of people in California were dissatisfied with that. Um, I personally did not take a huge issue with those statements. And I think that Feinstein has proven to be, you know, a staunch Democrat on many issues. She's been really vocal and strong on gun control recently, but she's just not seen as a progressive. And she's also somebody who has been in the Senate for a very long time, and especially to people who think that we should potentially have term limits for senators or that people should just choose not to run for for re-election after they've, you know, had so many terms. That's a bit of an issue. And then on the other side, we have our president pro tempore of our state Senate, Kevin DeLeon, who is you know, her challenger right now. And he kind of made a place for himself politically with SB 54, which is our so-called sanctuary state bill, which we are getting sued for by the Trump administration. So we'll see how that one plays out. Um, Gotta love living in California. I really do love it. Um, (laughs) We know. (laughs) Yeah, I've made it clear on many occasions that I think that California (laughs) is among the best, if not the best state in the union. But Kevin DeLeon kind of set himself as a very progressive candidate um, with SB 54. 
So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, my personal experience with Kevin DeLeon, I actually met him when I was interning at the Senate, um, and I was on the Senate floor with my senator, who is Steve Glazer, District 7. Um, and he just didn't really say hi, and he came next to us, and he was like, <laughs> all right, I'm ready for the picture. And we were kind of sitting there. We were really excited to meet him. It was a bunch of us interns. And he just took a picture and he said, thank you for your service to our government. And he walked out. So <laughs> I, yeah, I have kind of a personal vendetta. No, I really don't. Um, I think it'll be, you know, an interesting race for sure. Another one of DeLeon's kind of key things, we, California had a single payer health care bill go through the Senate um, and pass the Senate this past summer. And, and uh, DeLeon was a strong supporter of that. And then he kind of went toe to toe with Anthony Rendon, who's our speaker of um, our state assembly, who did not allow our single payer health care bill to enter the assembly floor. And so the California Nurses Association kind of descended on Sacramento. There were a lot of protests. And so that was the first time that De Leon had kind of gone toe to toe with Rendon because they're typically going not against, but kind of working with working together to convince Jerry Brown to sign more fiscally liberal legislation because our governor tends to be more a more fiscally conservative Democrat. So De Leon has kind of an interesting record in our state Senate. Um, he's definitely put his name out there with a lot of progressive legislation recently, but he's relatively little known throughout California um, among people that I've talked to. And I would not say that, you know, my friends are necessarily the, the most politically interested people in California and my district is not the most politically active, but he's not nearly as known as Feinstein, and she has a lengthy list of endorsements. I am no political analyst, but I <laughs> don't see him beating her in the primary. But I think it's an interesting challenge, and it forces her to reckon with you know, this more progressive side of the party that has been developing in our state for a long time. So you talked about your states as sanctuary bill, which Donald Trump is going to sue you guys over. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. so talk about the process uh, of you working with your state senator to uh, get that state bill passed and explain to people around the country as to what that sanctuary state bill exactly is and what it does. All right. So we had a package of three bills go through the legislature um, that are kind of all summed up as our quote unquote sanctuary state policy. Basically, what this is doing, um, the main one is the California Values Act, which limits state and local agencies from sharing information with federal officers. So it's the same kind of policy that's been implemented in so-called sanctuary cities across the country. And this just makes it kind of a statewide effort. And this is all unless those people have been convicted of serious crimes. Um, and so that was kind of one of the negotiating points is what kind of defines a serious crime. And we ended up adding on a longer list of serious crimes um, by the time the bill was passed than was originally intended by the bill, off by the bill authors. Um, and there's also an agreement that allows federal agents to interview people in custody and state and local agencies can continue to participate in these joint task forces with ICE or with other federal agencies should they choose to. Um, so there's no complete ban on California law enforcement from sharing their databases, but it provides a lot of families and a lot of, you know, undocumented communities in California with the security of knowing that their state officials and their local officials are not going to be working with federal officials um, potentially to lead to their deportation. So it's 
yeah, <laughs> that's basically a summary of it. Kind of my experience. Um, I was not, you know, super closely related to the bill. I was a summer intern and I mostly worked within my district. So my job was basically gathering constituent comments um, within my district to see, you know, kind of what the pulse was in District 7 and ultimately provide that information to my senator so that he could decide how to cast his vote. He was pretty pro on the bill at the beginning. Um, he ended up voting for it, as did all the Democratic senators um, in our state legislature. But kind of the pulse on my district, we were pretty for it. My district encompasses um, areas kind of up to the like northern part of the East Bay area, so kind of by the Oakland and Hayward area, which tend to go very blue. And then also I'm sort of at the southern end of my district, which tends to go more conservative, but that's all relatively speaking. We live in the Bay Area. So that's that bill. <laughs> um, and that is what we are being sued over. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um, with Trump's Justice Department. Our governor has staunchly defended the bill um, in a series of tweets, which is very uncharacteristic <laughs> of Jerry Brown. Um, so maybe playing into the current way of communicating with your constituents. But that's what's happening in California. Um, we're the first state to pass such legislation, but following the example of a lot of cities around the country. Well, Mackenzie, always a pleasure talking to you and you know, getting to learn from your vast political knowledge. Um, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.